You're never gonna know till you've met This young boy, Richie Rich is his name He's rich enough in the Rich Hall of Fame His bank account is as rich as his name That's Rich, Richie Rich Hi, I'm Kirk Karna And I'm Robert Trogdon And this is a special November 15th bonus episode of... Master the 40. This is a podcast devoted to the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald. We are here today uh, very excited because this is our first episode in which we're bringing on a special guest. So, Robert, would you introduce the uh, poor person that we're going to subject this silliness to? Well, we had a list of people that we wanted to get on for our discussion of Fitzgerald, and we figured that we'd bring in someone who actually knows something about Fitzgerald, unlike Kirk and myself. So I'm pleased to welcome the editor of the Cambridge edition of F. Scott Fitzgerald, James L.W. West III. Thank you, Robert, and thank you, Kirk. Thank you for having me. I thought I would tell our audience out there in internet land that this is indeed a special edition. Some years ago, Kirk and Robert and I discovered, I don't know how, but discovered that we were all born on November the 15th. I don't quite know how the stars were aligned or the planets, but we are all three people who have spent a lot of our lives working with F. Scott Fitzgerald. And it has to be more than accidental that we were all born on the same day of the month. This made me curious, so I looked on the internet and I found out that uh, other people born on November the 15th are Pope Nicholas V, William Pitt the Elder, Franklin P. Adams, who used to give bad reviews to Fitzgerald's books, Georgia O'Keeffe, Marianne Moore, Erwin Rommel, German general. That's not good. Satchevarel Sitwell, a literary reference. Petula Clark, whom I adore. And here's another accidental Fitzgerald, Sam Waterston, the actor who portrayed Nick Carraway in the 1974 movie version of The Great Gatsby with Mia Farrow. And a, and a co-star, a featured presence in the recent documentary about Gatsby in Connecticut. That's right. So I, I feel this cannot be accidental. And uh, so I'm pleased that all three of us can get together here on November the 15th and celebrate not only our birthdays, but also one of Fitzgerald's very best short stories, The Rich Boy, probably my favorite among them all. So I thought I'd just open it up by asking you guys to... Uh, to tell us where in the pantheon of Fitzgerald stories you would put The Rich Boy. I would put the story in the top five of the stories that he ever wrote. And um, certainly I think it belongs with May Day and The Diamond as Big as the Ritz, Babylon Revisited. And then I'm hard pressed to say what my, my fifth story would be there. Uh, because there's so many very, very good ones. I like it because it's complex. I had not reread the story in a number of years. I reread it yesterday and was surprised at how strongly it hit me. It really is a 
story that makes you think and then think again. Robert? Uh, it's it's easily top five for me. Yeah, I, don't, I think by any standard, The Rich Boys is one of his finest achievements in the short story form. We can We can talk about, as we did with Mayday a little bit, whether this is actually a short story or it's more almost a novella because it was published in in Red Book. And this is our first episode where we're talking about Fitzgerald's relationship with Red Book. But it it was so long and had to be spread over two issues. And when I reread it, I was thinking a contemporary reader might look at this and wonder what's going on because a lot of things happen, but it's not a it's not a plotted story. We don't have riots in the street as we do with May Day. So Jim, I'm just wondering if you could kind of characterize what is Fitzgerald doing in this story? It's a story about the revelation of character. And you're certainly right uh, that there is no real plot to the story. It's an episodic story, and uh, the characters don't really change. You remember that when we were learning as undergraduates how to read and interpret literature, we were told always to look for the change that occurs in a given character, but there really aren't changes in any of the characters here. Uh, So it's revelation of character, but also of the society in which um, Anson lives. I always think of Edith Wharton when I read the story and of how very well she is able to um, elucidate how New York society of her period operates and how social status is established in that society. Fitzgerald is doing something of the same thing here. But you're right, there's no real plot to follow. It's almost a biography in a short story. And I love what you say about Edith Wharton because I was gonna I was gonna say we're into Henry James territory with the nuance here. This is I think if we were gonna classify the technique, it'd be psychological realism, although we are outside of the head of Anson Hunter. It's very much a realist short story and it has that sort of uh, observer, observed type of approach, like all the realists, Willa Cather used to do this too, and Daisy Miller, where they would subtitle their stories, A Study. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, this is kind of what we have is it's a psychological portrait of the rich, which brings us to maybe the major question about uh, why Fitzgerald wrote this, and and what is he saying about rich people in this story? Well, I mean, it's he's making a difference between like the 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 old money of New York versus the the new money, and I always you know if we look at Gatsby, which is the major work that precedes this, that was about the new money coming into to this New York society. And now he's looking at with Anson Hunter at how the old money is, is changing the families with old, you know, with, you know, generational wealth uh, are changing or are not changing uh, due to this uh, influx of uh, new ideas and new morals and uh, new types of codes coming in. 
You have an interesting theory about the story, Robert, that uh, because it was written just as uh, he started writing it just as Gatsby was being published. And so you kind of see this as uh, you see Anson Hunter as kind of the anti Jay Gatsby. You want to explain that a little? It's almost as if and that he's writing this as sort of a palate cleanser after Gatsby. And Anson Hunter always strikes me as one of Fitzgerald's most unromantic heroes, a man almost that wants to be a romantic like Gatsby, who wants to be able to feel those emotions, but he's incapable uh, because of his background or anything else of, of really committing himself to either Paula or Dolly the way that Gatsby is able to commit himself to Daisy. The story could have been the kind of critique of the rich that the great Gatsby is, but Anson is a much more sympathetic character than Tom Buchanan. He's not as one-dimensional, but it is critiquing, I think, the coldness or the aloofness of the rich. And um, it just brings up a simple question, I think, that that a lot of Fitzgerald poses for us is what, what do we have against rich people? A lot of people have a lot of things against them, depending on uh, who we're talking about. But let's remember that this is uh, not just rich people, but it's all money and it's the very rich. You know, the um, famous quotation from the story it's actually the very rich are different from you and me, not just the rich. Uh, so it's old money, and um, it's a lot of old money. The question for me is always whether Anson is um, incapable of love and detached from emotion because of his upbringing and because of his family and his money or whether he is innately incapable of love. We see in the story that he cannot surrender control. Uh, he must control others. He must be a kind of master of ceremonies, but he pays a price for it. And we see it particularly later in the story, um, a price of loneliness and of superficial relationships. I always like that little scene in which uh, he goes to the bar and Nick, the bartender, pretends to be the old family uh, retainer, and they have a little back and forth about all of that. Um, but in fact, Anson's life is empty, and he envies uh, people he sees, like Paula, who have gone into life and have been hurt and uh, who've been able to feel emotion. Um, but he's finally unwilling to surrender that sense of superiority and social status that would allow him to be vulnerable to others. Yeah, I think that word superiority is the one that rings the most throughout the story. It's, it's not even money so much as it's the uh, removal emotionally from any particular interaction with people and the idea that he feels above everybody. So it is, that's a great question about whether it's, it's a product of his wealth or his upbringing or if it's something innate. A lot of people think the story begins with that line about 
let me tell you about the very rich. But actually, that's in the second paragraph. And the way the story really opens is he says, there are no types, there are only individuals. And that, I have to say, that paragraph throws me a little bit because I want to read Anson as a type. And yet that story or that paragraph seems to, and correct me if I'm wrong in my reading of this, it seems to want to say that don't read him as a type of, of the rich. This is his story only. Am I just totally misreading that? No, not at all. I've always had some troubles with that paragraph myself because uh, the narrator tells us that he is Anson's friend, but is he really? And is he only describing Anson or is he by implication describing the very rich? Um, it certainly is an ambiguity in the story. What, what do you think, Robert? It's metafictional. It's, it's Fitzgerald almost describing the difficulty of writing, which is quite funny. But when you get into the story, none of the other characters of, of Anson's social class, his aunt, uh, his, his supposed friends at, at uh, Yale, or anything are any anywhere like them like him they those characters in his family seem to have been able to move on uh with the times uh to mature to form families and things of that nature and so i think fitzgerald is being very careful to saying that he is not writing about a, a specific class of people he is writing about a character who is in this class but set apart from it. So what he, he's the the narrator also intrigues me as well because you know nothing about the narrator. Uh, it is the the most self-effacing narrator since Charlie Marlowe and and uh, Conrad's uh, either Heart of Darkness or I think more more to the point uh, Lord Jim uh, telling this story and. It just sort of amazes me of, of how incapable Anson is of change, of, of any type of growth whatsoever. Um, he is comfortable with who he is and where he is, and um, Paula, Dolly, no one is going to change that. The narrator also intrigues me. Like you all, I always teach the rich boy shortly after I've talked to Great Gatsby. And everyone in the class says, oh, of course, this is like Nick Carraway, this narrator. They're really the same person, but they're not. For one thing, this is an unnamed narrator. For another, we know nothing about him and about his background. Uh, and even more important, if you look at The Great Gatsby, Nick doesn't tell you anything that he cannot document. He was either there and he saw or heard what went on, or in a few cases, he has reliable information from someone else. But he's almost like a scholar dropping footnotes telling you, now this is where I got this information and here's how I learned this other. The narrator of The Rich Boy, if you'll read the story carefully, he tells us a lot of things that he has no way of knowing. There are two places in the story in which he implies that he has become a confidant to um, Anson and that Anson has told him 
these stories, but he could not possibly, Anson could not have told the stories in the detail that our narrator uh, relates them here. Now, you don't really notice that when you read the story. It's only when you go back and analyze the point of view that you see uh, that this narrator is imagining a good many of the situations that occur in the story. Have you ever thought that, uh, Kirk? Yeah, definitely. It's it's uh, it's almost like he's, tr- again, to come back to that idea of the psychological portraiture, it's almost like he's hypothesizing a lot about what what ants what makes Anson tick and uh you know you get this idea of him observing this acquaintance of his and trying to imagine the uh the inner life and and what's going on in his head and his his relationships and the things that he is hearing so much of this story is built around gossip that kind of filters around to the narrator. I, you know, I heard this, this was happening with him. And, you know, I heard that his co-workers told him to take this vacation because he was seeming a little stressed. And so there is a lot of speculation. And of course, part of that comes out of the sort of the inspiration for the story, because this this is a unique story in that Fitzgerald was very open about the fact that he based uh, Anson Hunter on a, on a friend of his. Now, I don't know that, it, I, I'm not sure this would have exactly struck me as a compliment, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, Jim, tell us a little bit about the uh, inspiration for the story. Well, Fitzgerald wrote this story and created Anson Hunter with his friend Ludlow Fowler in mind. We know about Ludlow Fowler because he and Fitzgerald were classmates at Princeton. Fowler was in Fitzgerald's wedding to Zelda, and he's one of the people from Princeton with whom Fitzgerald stayed in touch over his entire life. Uh, And in fact, Fowler was one of the very few people who came to Fitzgerald's funeral in uh, 1940. But uh, obviously Fitzgerald had been observing Ludlow Fowler and uh, Fowler makes an initial appearance in May Day as I think Mr. Out. Remember Mr. In and Mr. Out? Fitzgerald was Mr. In and Fowler was Mr. Out. They were uh, having a bibulous good time of it in New York City. But that's not a, a real examination of Fowler's character. So Fitzgerald wrote The Rich Boy, and then he wrote a letter to Ludlow Fowler, and he said, I have written a story about you. It is frank and unsparing, uh, but I think it is valid. And I will send you a copy of the story that is a TypeScript. And if there's anything in the story that you want me to cut or change, you must tell me. Uh, Fitzgerald did this. He sent a TypeScript to Fowler, and Fowler located really only two small passages that he wanted Fitzgerald to have cut. Well, there was a mix-up, and the cuts were not made, and the passages actually did appear in the Red Book text. But then when the text was collected by Fitzgerald in All the Sad Young Men, his third collection of short stories, he did manage to cut those passages. But it's possible to identify them, and I put them in an appendix to the Cambridge edition of All the Sad Young Men. And uh, 
As it happened, though, uh, apparently all of Fitzgerald's and Fowler's friends, when they read the story, immediately recognized that Anson Warner was Ludlow Fowler. And uh, I think Fowler rather liked the attention. Your love gives me such a thrill. But your love won't pay my bills. I want money. We have to remember that this is 1926, and one could not be terribly explicit in a national magazine um, aimed at, at the middle class, but still there is a sexual undercurrent in the story. And I tried to trace it out in my most re- recent reading yesterday. It seems to me that there is sexual tension between Anson and both Paula on the one hand, and Dolly on the other. But uh, in neither case does he let himself go all the way, as we used to say, particularly in that second uh, scene with Dolly, when he and she are alone in his house out in the country. And uh, I remember that, uh, or, or in my analysis of Anson, it seems to me that he sees sex as something for his enjoyment, but also is very much aware that he can be entrapped by sex. And he's able to control himself because he's afraid that uh, this will, uh, sex with a woman would create a kind of obligation that he would be unable to extricate himself from. He's really very good at getting out of things and and staying invulnerable. But the problem is that uh, he observes people who have gone into the messiness of life and envies them in some ways. But uh, his life actually is fairly tidy and disciplined. And that's true also of his attitude towards sex. Sex is perhaps something that one engages in with a coarse girl or with a loose woman, but not with anyone who is anywhere close to his own social class. I'm glad you mentioned that scene with Dolly because I there there are two moments in this story that just really confirmed to me how uh, perceptive Fitzgerald was in creating nuanced characters and. Anson sort of overcomes his disappointment with himself at losing Paula by getting involved with Dolly, who is kind of a lesser, she's new money. She's the son of, or excuse me, she's the daughter of a publicist. And, um, but they have this buildup to where she is, I mean, they are right there in the bedroom. And what stops him is he realizes that Paula's portrait is hanging over the bed and he's about to take this woman's virginity is what it implies. And he just comes to know that he, it just comes on him immediately says, you know, I don't love you. You need to find somebody who loves you. The thing that, that struck me about that is it, it almost harkens back to this side of paradise with Amory Blaine when he has the vision of his, of his dead friend. Uh, before he is going to consummate a sexual relation. And it's that same attitude. Fitzgerald's not afraid of of talking or, or having characters have sex. You have Gatsby, 
you know, took Daisy because he did not have the right to hold her hand. But there is that aspect that passion is entrapping. And Anson, if anything, is able to compartmentalize all these different aspects of his life. He talks about when Anson and and Paula are down in Florida and having their serious conversations, even when he's engaged in those conversations, Fitzgerald writes, there's another part of him that's sort of off to the side observing it and being very dispassionate about what's going on um, and aware of, of not, you know, getting wrapped up in the emotional um, and the passion that, that Paula is, is, wants to generate in him. I think a lot of critics have misunderstood that, that sexual holding back that, that can happen in Fitzgerald. Leslie Fiedler has a line about all Fitzgerald could imagine was the kiss. And I think in some ways the kiss for Fitzgerald was the romantic promise, but actual sex was, was realism. I mean, that was where the complications came from. I wanted to add, uh, let's remember that scene in Tender is the Night in which Dick Baver turns Rosemary down. Uh, there she is, and she offers herself to him, uh, and uh, he calls her youngster and uh, says, no, I'd rather it be someone who really loves you. Um, and you, you have to admire Dick for that. Uh, and yet it does, the situation argues for a certain squeamishness about sex with this girl. Of course, it is true that the kiss is the high point of everything. And once you get into that sexual stuff, it's, uh, it's liable to go downhill pretty quickly. So um, uh, Dick, perhaps as a psychologist, knows something about that. Fitzgerald, I think, had maybe the same attitude. The other scene in this story that blows me away is when he comes back and he and Paula have this reunion and he's invited to come stay with her and her second husband. And there's this very masochistic scene where Paula, who is pregnant, uh, with her fourth child, I believe. And she she asks, she, she says, we have a special trick. And the trick is, is that the husband picks her up and carries her up the stairs, which is kind of the cliched romantic vision. But they make Anson sit there and watch this. And she says to him, he's so strong, isn't he, Anson? And, and Anson has to sit there and say, you know, you, you have found with this second husband, what you would not have had with me. And uh, it, to me, it's just such a powerful moment where it really does bring out again, the fact that Anson Hunter is not Tom Buchanan and that uh, he is very aware of what the cost of his emotional disconnect, his emotional aloofness is. I reacted to that scene the same way when I read it yesterday, Anson sits there and observes Paula and her husband, and she asks him these little questions, and he says, yes, yes, yes. And as the final um, bit in the scene, Paula says, 
uh, we've laid out a pair of her husband's pajamas for you. And you know that Anson won't fit into them. The husband is very fit and handsome and uh, Anson not so much. When he gets reunited with Paula, what strikes me is that she is, and this is the, the weekend where he has nothing to do. It's like all of his friends are out of town and he runs into Paula and, you know, they have their, she brings him home, her husband absents himself and she tells him, I was infatuated with you. You could make me do anything you liked, but we wouldn't have been happy. I'm not smart enough for you. It's very telling. She doesn't say I loved you. She says I was infatuated with you. And that is almost the cruelest thing that she could say to him because this, you know, if he's lying to himself about like that, he is, he, you know, is just too old and now is incapable of love or incapable of finding anyone. But once, once someone loved me, uh, her saying that is like stripping him out of the, the last illusion that he, that he has. One of the ironies of the, the, of him basing this on Ludlow Fowler is within six months of this story appearing in Red Book, Ludlow Fowler got married and by all accounts had a, had a wonderful marriage until a car wreck in 1942 that killed his wife and which he was severely injured as well. And I don't believe he ever got remarried after that. He lived another 20 years or so, but, uh, it, it does give you that sense that he is he is isolated and again not so much by his wealth but by his need to exert that uh, superiority and to prove that he that he can have that sway over people that he can be interesting and in some ways I think that's part of what makes the story autobiographical because Fitzgerald was so self-consciously aware in his own friendships of his need almost torn in two on the one hand by his need to uh, be the center of attention and exert that that charisma but on the on the other hand his desire to to step back and to analyze that need and um, I could totally see Ludlow Fowler just kind of reading the story and sort of nodding and say, Oh yeah, yeah, not a, not a problem. I don't have a problem being that type of person. I wish somewhere we had discovered a letter from Ludlow Fowler uh, to a third party in which Fowler said, you remember that story Fitzgerald wrote about me that Scott wrote the rich boy. Well, he nailed me. He nailed me pretty well. I was in a novel about 30 years ago, uh, written by a woman in a town in which I lived. And she used my name, but I did not know her. Uh, I did know another woman, and the woman who wrote the novel was best friends with this other woman. So if this is all straight now, and she put me in the novel, uh, and boy, she knew me inside out without ever having met me. Uh, and I remember that the novel was published and uh, all the women's book clubs in town read the novel, including a book club in uh, my mother was a member. And my mother, the next time she saw me, she said, son, 
did you know that you are in such and such uh, novel? And I said, well, yes, mother, I did know that. And she said, how did she know all this about you? And at that point, I fumbled and bumbled and changed the subject. Uh, it's a forgotten novel, and uh, I'm not going to say what the title of it is or the author, but uh, I remember it made me feel kind of peculiar uh, about how all that had come about. <laughs> it may have been forgotten, but it's about to be rediscovered. Robert, Robert and I are going to put the Sherlock Holmes hats on now and go go find this. That's a great story. I will be on ABE books immediately after we finish <laughs> recording this. Talking about Hemingway and Fitzgerald, we we need to we need to bring out that this the that the line in this story that stereotype Fitzgerald for years and years and Hemingway very uh, cruelly quotes the line about the rich are very different from you and me and we can use this as a way to kind of segue into uh, talking about the field that both of you guys are are rock stars in uh, textual editing because uh, Robert has an interesting theory that I want that I want Jim's opinion on but Robert tell us how did how did Hemingway use this line in the story and when did he use it and what was Fitzgerald's reaction? He used it in uh, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, which is uh, published in August of 1936 in Esquire magazine, and is probably Hemingway's best known and maybe his best short story about a dying writer in Africa based um, uh, pretty much on Hemingway and his second wife, Pauline Pfeiffer Hemingway. Uh, Harry is dying of uh, gangrene and musing about uh, the rich and how he has been corrupted by the rich and by comfort. And the line, it's towards the end of the story uh, in Esquire was, he remembered poor Scott Fitzgerald and his romantic awe of the rich and how he uh, started one story with the rich are different from you and I. Uh, and then someone had said, yes, they have more money, but that was not funny to Scott. Um, so that appeared in uh, Esquire. And there was also um, uh, Fitzgerald, I think, uh, The Author's House, if I remember. Same issue. At the, And the same issue. And so Fitzgerald, um, Fitzgerald was keenly aware and he, he wrote, Hemingway a, a letter and says, Dear Ernest, please lay off me in print. And father, he he then, you know, not expecting Hemingway to do the right thing, wrote to Max Perkins. And uh, and Perkins, when the story was to be collected in the fifth column and the first 49 stories uh, in 1938, uh, Perkins asked Hemingway to change the Fitzgerald reference there. And so it became poor Julian in subsequent editions. I, if I ever get a chance to edit uh, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, I want to put Scott Fitzgerald back. I'm going to change the, the poor Julian to Scott Fitzgerald. 
And a couple of reasons, Scott Fitzgerald is mentioned in the Torrents of Spring, has always been in the Torrents of Spring. And then you've got Homage to Switzerland, in which one of the characters uh, in the second section talks about Scott Fitzgerald and and college days uh, when he's joking with one of the waitresses in there. I think almost that the story is more of a condemnation of Hemingway than it is him uh, condemning Fitzgerald, although um, it's um, <laughs> neither one of them get off very easily. I love that idea. And, and it brings us to these kind of ethical questions that you guys deal with a lot when you're when you're working with this. And um, Jim, I want to I just wanted to ask you to respond to Robert's idea. If you were editing Snows of Kilimanjaro, would you put poor Scott Fitzgerald back in. And then let's switch gears and bring it back to the rich boy, because you made some very specific decisions when you edited this version that's in the Cambridge and kind of walk us through how you ended up with the, the text that, that now stands as, uh, as our estate certified version of, of the rich boy. Well, I will. I do agree with Robert. I do think that Fitzgerald's name should go back into the snows of Kilimanjaro. That's part of the importance of the story, and it helps explain where Hemingway got his ideas about the rich and the effect that they might have had upon him. Um, It is important, though, to note that uh, when you read the snows of Kilimanjaro, The implication is that it is Hemingway who said, yes, they have more money. But in fact, it was not. Uh, This uh, remark was by a poet named Molly Collum, who was having lunch with Maxwell Perkins and Hemingway. And um, Perkins later uh, recorded the fact that it was Molly Collum who said, yes, they have more money. Uh, Hemingway elides that business, uh, and many people think that Hemingway came up with with the line. Uh, And in fact, it's not a particularly uh, perceptive line. Yes, the rich have more money, but as we've just been discussing uh, with Fitzgerald's The Rich Boy, uh, it's more than just having money. Uh, It has to do with social status and family and attitude, education. All of these things uh, are at least as important as how much money you have. Well, yes, let me explain what happened with the text of The Rich Boy. Um, The Rich Boy is one of the most complicated stories textually in Fitzgerald's canon. And I did have some difficulties in uh, editing it and some decisions to make. Fitzgerald began the story in March of 1925 uh, when he was on the island of Capri um, after the Great Gatsby proofs had been finished. He conceived the story from the beginning as a novella. Uh, It's 15,000 words long, and he thought of it from the beginning as a two or three part uh, story that would be published either in the Saturday Evening Post or Red Book. And that's indeed what he delivered. 
it took Fitzgerald longer than he thought it would to finish the first version of the story, but by early August of 1926, he was able to send a typescript to his literary agent, Harold Ober. Uh, that typescript had handwritten revisions on it, so Ober had a clean copy made and sold the story to Red Book for $3,500. That was a lot of money in 1926. He would want to uh, multiply by a factor of 12, 13, 14, 15 even to get the worth today. It was quite a bit of money. And uh, so Fitzgerald had taken particular care with the story. The interesting thing, though, is that Fitzgerald sent a ribbon typescript to Ober, but he kept a carbon typescript and continued to revise the story for inclusion in All the Sad Young Men. So you have two versions of the story as a result. And in fact, if you break it down even uh, more closely, you have four different versions. Uh, there are the two versions embodied in the typescript that went to uh, Ober, the uh, type story, and then the handwritten revisions. And then you have the story that came out in Red Book. And then you have the story that Fitzgerald continued to revise and that ended up in All the Sad Young Men. Also in Red Book, there was a motorization of the story. You may remember in that scene in which Anson runs into Paula, uh, she is standing sidewise to the light, sideways to the light, and she's obviously with child, that is, she's pregnant. That reference was edited out by the Red Book editors, uh, as was another that had to do with her shape. I'm old enough to remember when the shape of women when they were pregnant was something to be concealed and not to be talked about. Uh, and so Red Book did uh, edit that sort of thing out, creating confusion in the story, because later on, Paula will die in childbirth. Well, all of this finally was straightened out uh, for the All the Sad Young Men text. But uh, just to see what would happen, I tried to create what I would call a portmanteau version of the story in which I selected variants from the typescript, from the Red Book text, and then from the All Said Young Men text. I thought I could do it, but it ended up to be impossible. And what I created was a mosh pit. You had all kinds of variants jangling around and contradicting each other. I finally uh, concluded that what we have is separate versions of the story. They're not terribly different from one another, but they are different enough that you cannot blend them. You cannot have a blended text. And so the text that's in the Cambridge edition is the text from Fitzgerald's All the Sad Young Men, his, his text there. I had to amend it in a few places just for typographical errors and other things of that sort. Still, those other texts do survive. And it's always interesting to know that there's more than one version of a story that's floating around. And if you're really serious about studying a story and more right about it, it's always interesting to read those other versions, just as, for instance, 
reading the serial version of Tender is the Night brings up a whole lot of questions that you don't really have in your in your mind when you read the book version. So it's always interesting to know the background. I, I'm fascinated by the fact that Red Book could not could not refer to Paula being pregnant since there is so much innuendo about Anson's sex life in the in his relationship with women in the story. And it brings up a question. This is our first story we're looking at that he did with Red Book. And and he, he maybe only did a half dozen stories over the years with Red Book, tended to be in the mid-20s. And then Roberts, they, they did publish Roberts' very favorite uh, adventures in uh, historical fiction. It was in Red Book that he... <laughs> <laughs> Robert's laughing because <laughs> he hates these stories with a passion. But uh, <laughs> Red Book was the only magazine in the 30s that would take his attempt to produce a uh, medieval historical chronicle. It, it's not it's not so much my amusement of it, but just how much uh, uh, Broccoli hated those those Philippe stories and did not did not want to discuss them in any way whatsoever. That's what always amused me about the Philippe stories. Philippe was Fitzgerald's version of a, of a almost a Prince Valiant character. If you, if, if folks remember, remember Prince Valiant when he had that, it was like, how do you, this is kind of pre Conan. How do you possibly have a, a medieval hero with a page boy haircut? That was, that was always like the highlight of the funny papers was uh, peanuts and then Prince Valiant. And actually they made a movie version that Robert Wagner is in oh, that if God. you Google, <laughs> Google, if you ever want to see Robert Wagner with a page boy haircut, it's uh it's, it's pretty funny, but uh, red book is interesting to me because it, it this is an, People hear the name, and the, and it's the same with Cosmopolitan, which Fitzgerald did not publish a story in, although Hemingway did. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but I don't think Fitzgerald ever did did anything with Cosmopolitan. But long before those were women's magazines, they were general interest fiction magazines. So they would have had, although they geared, you know, especially Red Book was geared mostly toward women, they did produce a lot of fiction that was um, would have attracted a male audience as well. And what happened was is that those the, the, those magazines, when television came around and short stories kind of became more academic, uh, less popular in entertainment, that they had to reinvent themselves as women's women's magazines. I'm just kind of curious, why do you think this story could not have appeared in the post well it may be because of that undercurrent of uh, sexual tension that we sense in the story red book and cosmopolitan were both known as magazines that would allow a little more uh in the way of sexual innuendo or passion the post was pretty uh, rather puritanical in fact in one of Fitzgerald's stories, they removed a reference to the couple sleeping in bed together, married people, uh, and put them in twin beds. So <laughs> that, was, that was kind of the Ricky and Lucy bedroom type scenario there, or, or, or the uh, Dick Van Dyke show 
where they had where he and Laura had separate beds. That's so funny. Dear Abby always said that uh, if you kept one foot on the floor, if, if you were on a sofa with a boy, but you kept one foot on the floor, you'd never get in trouble. And uh, actually, she was right. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish somebody had taught me that lesson. Could have <laughs> yeah, could have saved too. me a lot of problems in life. Jim, when we wrap up the um, podcast, we always do two things, one of which we're going to tweak a little bit, uh, but we always rate the story on a scale of one to 10 Zeldas. So uh, how many Zeldas would you give the rich boy? I would give the rich boy 11 Zeldas. (laughs) Crank it to 11. (laughs) It's a a true masterpiece, and uh, I've always enjoyed uh, reading the story. I love to teach it and I like to think about it. It stayed in my mind, uh, uh, yesterday and today, and will continue to after our discussion today. So I give it 11. Great. Robert, what would you give it? I'm going to stick with our guests and give it 11 as well. It is just a tremendously constructed story a well-written story it, it it hits like emotional and intellectual marks for me and and very moving yeah i would agree i think for certain it's one of the top five stories it it really demonstrates fitzgerald's perceptiveness in reading character and reading the psychological nuance that uh that Many of his contemporaries, I don't think, really had. So, by any measure, the rich boy is one of his uh, one of his finest achievements. The other thing we typically do that we're not going to do is randomly draw a story for our next episode. We're going to do instead. We're going to go back to our regularly scheduled Pat Hobby and Orson Welles. But uh, we did come up with a a little game we wanted to play here with our guest and. Jim, you may not ever talk to us after this. This is called uh, Flapper or Not Flapper. And the idea here is we are going to, uh, we're going to give you the name of a character because Fitzgerald was so ingenious at coming up with names for his female characters. And we want you to tell us whether this is an actual Fitzgerald heroine out of the short stories or not. We couldn't do this with any other guest because you are one of a small handful of people living that can claim to have read every single Fitzgerald story. So we're just going to, we're going to run these by you and you tell us, you don't have to name the story. That's probably asking a little more of anybody. I doubt Fitzgerald could do that. But you just tell us if it if it's a real Fitzgerald heroine or not. Ardita Farnham. Ardita Farnham is in uh, uh, early story, The Offshore Pirate. You did it. Yes. You got it. Uh-huh. You got it. Okay. Uh, Jonquil Carey. John Fulcari, oh, she certainly should be. Uh, 
I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that's a fabrication. Well, I'm sorry. Oh, does Robert know? I, I know it's a character. Um, and I, It's out of one of your favorite stories, Robert. Oh, is this uh, Last, Last of the Bells? Nope, it's Sensible Thing. Sensible Thing. Ah, oh. okay. Yep, okay. Third one here. Tootie Ramsey. Tootie. I knew Tootie. I had a date with her in sophomore year of high school. So I'm going to say no, no. Tootie Ramsey is not a Fitzgerald character. That is the name of one of the characters on The Facts of Life that Robert and I grew up watching in the <laughs> 70s. Don't, don't speak for me on this. Don't speak <laughs> for me on this. Uh, Amanthus Powell. I'm, I'm going to say yes, though I, I cannot call the story. She was in Dice, Brass Knuckles, and Guitar. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Which is a great story. Yeah. Uh, Kismine Washington. Kismine Washington. Kismine. Kismine Washington and her sister, uh, Jasmine, are in The Diamond is Biggest the Bigs. Yes. All right. Vesper Lynn. <laughs> Oh, she's uh, in an Ian Fleming novel. We were arguing about whether we should put the, the female character from James Bond that everybody remembers, but we decided to keep it a family show. So, Ulsa Icky. Ulsa Icky. There is a Fitzgerald story, Mr. Icky. So I'm going to say that Ulsa must appear in that story. You are exactly right, and that goes that will go down in history as the worst title for a Fitzgerald <laughs> story ever, Mr. Mr. Icky. Nomi Malone. Nomi Malone. I think that Nomi and I are kin to each other, and we found this out when we had our DNA tested. But I'm gonna say no. You would be right, because Nomi Malone is actually the main character in the awful, awful 1995 exploitation movie Showgirls, uh -huh. played by Elizabeth Berkeley, formerly of Saved by the Bell, which Robert will now claim he never watched. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say that this says much more about your taste than, <laughs> than it does anything else. All right. Uh, Mini Bibble. Uh, Ermini Labouis Bibble, who is based on Ginevra King and who appears in several of the uh, Basil Duplee stories, including the very last one, Basil and Cleopatra. She's a very important character. Yep, yep. Fifi Schwartz. Fifi is, yes, Fifi is in... Uh, a story about anti-Semitism of the Hotel Child. Yes, I believe that's the title. Actually, a, a, I think a really good story that doesn't get a whole lot of attention. I agree. All right. Fine, final one. Fitzgerald heroine or not. Chloe Kardashian. No, she's on TV, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jim, you may never talk to us again after putting you through that, but 
we do appreciate you coming on uh, this special November 15th episode of uh, Master of the 40. And uh, I think Robert and I would be remiss on the part of uh, Fitzgerald fans if we didn't just say thank you for all the uh, wonderful work you've done over the years, not only on the Cambridge editions, but on all of your scholarship. You've, re you've really plowed a path for, that, that many of us follow. Well, thank you, Kirk. I appreciate you saying that. And as a matter of fact, I should say that I have been unable to stop uh, I continue to turn out a, an article here and a review there. Uh, it's addictive, of course, but above all, it's it's great pleasure. Uh, the immersion in Fitzgerald's work over a period of 50 years has been a major part of my life, and I wouldn't have missed it. We are deeply appreciative. So. We will be back uh, next week. We're going to get back together and tape our episode on Pat Hobby and Orson Welles. How are you doing, Robert? I'm doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. It's, uh, the lawn work is going well, and the online teaching is going not so well, but otherwise, I'm pretty good. All right, then. Well, we will be back over the holiday break. And until then, we'll just leave you with one little pearl of wisdom that is the rich are not like any of us. So until we meet again. They say that money can't buy love in this world. You get your half pound of cocaine in a 16-year-old girl. Great big long limousine on a hot September night. Now that may not be love, but it is all right. Thank you.